You're listening to the Grace City Boston podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at gracecityboston.com or follow us on social media at Grace City Boston. Now, let's get to the sermon. Good morning and happy Mother's Day. I was wondering if you guys would respond to that, and I'd be like, that'd be weird if you did that because I'm not a mother. That'd be interesting. Uh, it's great to be with you today. It's a beautiful sunny day. What a great Mother's Day. Um, shout out to my mom. She's not here. I think this is being filmed, right? This, this service? Yeah. So she'll, she'll watch this on YouTube. She watches all the videos, you know. So shout out Kim Brown. She's back in Tennessee. Anyone far from their mom today? Oh, man. That's just, that's sad. I don't know why that just made me so sad that raise, everyone raised their hand. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad uh, to see all your faces today. It's just a beautiful day and a great Mother's Day. We are in a series on the fruit of the Spirit, which comes from Galatians chapter 5 and this long, exhaustive list that Paul gives about the spiritual fruit that we are to bear as people who are filled with the Spirit of God. And there's sort of a four-stage process. If you look at the New Testament's use of this metaphor of like humans are trees that are planted and they're supposed to grow and bear fruit, this is like a consistent metaphor that's used throughout the New Testament. And usually you see four different stages of this. Uh, you have the planting, the watering, the growth, and the fruit. Okay, and we're going to be talking about the last of these stages, right? Uh, planting is, am I getting some, some sound back in the speakers? Does it sound okay? Just a little bit. Should I move back or what someone tell me what to do, Brian? Back? All right, I'm gonna move back real quick. Just need to get farther away from you guys. How about how's this? Is that good? Good? Awesome. That's not awkward. Okay, so uh, our four stages here. Planting, this is uh, receiving the word of God, hearing the words of Jesus and taking them and doing something with them, right? This is being soil that is gonna receive some seed, right? Watering, this is nourishing the seed. This is studying the scriptures. This is spiritual disciplines, praying, fasting, generosity, anything like that. Uh, living in community. Growth, Jesus describes as the stuff that only God does. It's the mysterious part of this where you wake up one day after uh, a few days or a week or a month and things are just different than they used to be right? There's just this growth that's happened. Jesus uses this metaphor of a farmer, right? He does all he can do. He can till, he can water, he can do all this work, but he goes to sleep and he wakes up and the plants are just bigger than they were the next or the previous day. He says, that's the kind of stuff that God does, that you're not exactly sure how it happens, how fast it happens, to what extent it happens. You just wake up one day and you're like, I'm very different than I was six months ago. I've been doing all these different things. That's where growth has come. And ultimately, as we'll talk about throughout this series, we bear fruit. There's a result of all of this work, right? And why, why does someone plant a, a tree in the first place, a fruit tree or anything that bears fruit? It's so that the person who planted it could enjoy what it bears, right? A farmer plants a fruit tree, plants a strawberry bush so that he can eat the fruit. So this is sort of guiding how we think about fruit of the Spirit today, okay? Uh, God has planted within us his spirit so that he can reap the fruit from it, so that he can enjoy what he's creating within us. Now, as we look at this uh, text in Galatians, um, fruit is used here, obviously, as a metaphor, as the outcome or the output for the work that is put in. 
you receive an output for the work that's put in. This is used in a lot of different ways. Children are talked about as like the fruit of the love of two parents or the fruit of like for a man, it's like the fruit of his loins, something like that, right? You've heard that term before. They are what you receive uh, for the work of marriage and intimacy, right? It's, it's, what, it's the result of what you've done. And so the fruit of the Spirit, specifically what this means, is the outcome of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. It's just a basic definition we're using for fruit of the Spirit as we move forward. And it's actually, as we've discussed, it's actually the purpose of why God has saved a people for himself in the first place, to enjoy what he's creating them as and what he's turning them into and to, uh, for his glory, for his enjoyment. This was the story of the Old Testament, God saving a people out of Egypt, Israel, and giving them laws and commands and communicating his characteristics and his nature to them and saying, become like me. I have created you. You're for my pleasure. You're for my own enjoyment. You're for my glory. That was their purpose. And it's still the purpose uh, as God's people have transitioned from a sort of mono-ethnic people of Israel to the multi-ethnic church or the gathering of Christians, the followers of Christ, the purpose is the exact same. Paul actually talks about this more in depth in his letter to the Ephesians. If we read there in chapter 2, starting in verse 8, he says this. He says, for you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So we are not saved by our good works. We are saved for good works out ahead of us that God has planned ahead. That's why he saved a people in the first place. So when we look at this text of Galatians 5, it's important to make a, a grammatical note, actually, to help us understand Paul's point. So if you look at the term fruit of the Spirit, which let's go back, that's in verse 22, so you could put that up. The fruit, the word fruit is actually singular. And a lot of times we like to talk about the fruits of the Spirit as like, I don't know, is it nine? We'll, we'll just call it nine. Maybe it's eight, maybe it's, I don't know. Uh, maybe it's like nine different fruits, like we're a tree that, that bears apples and lemons and limes and oranges and all these different fruits, which is kind of a cool idea. But it's actually singular. And so Paul, when he's saying this, he's actually talking about one thing that you bear that holds all of these different aspects. It wouldn't be right to think of this as like, you could bear some of these fruits and not other of these fruits, right? If you're lacking in any of these areas, I would call that an imperfect fruit, not having some fruit and not other fruits. Does that make sense? So there's just a distinction between those two ideas because Paul's using this as a singular idea. So uh, we're, we're seeing this as different aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, the one fruit of the Spirit rather than a bunch of different individual fruits. And that means generally that we can either be bearing generally good fruit or generally rotten fruit, right? That has some sort of uh, some sort of thing wrong with it that makes it very unattractive, right? Have you ever uh, have you ever gone to the store and looked for a mango, right? Mangoes for me, I just have like they hate me. I go buy like three mangoes and they're never good. I, I love mangoes so much, but I go to the store. I try to look for a good one. I look up online. How do you find a good mango? Obviously, I don't know how to do it. I inspect it, right? I'm like this one. It looks good. It feels good. It smells good. All I can go buy is on the outside, and I get it home. Wait a day maybe two days, I cut it open, just completely dry. 
Can I get an amen? Anyone? <laughs> Anyone try to find a good mango? Can I get a witness? And then there's other mangoes where I like take it home and I'm like, dang it, this thing has a huge bruise on it, right? Like I accidentally got a horrible mango and I'll cut it open and it's just amazing, right? It's like completely juicy. The opposite will happen. And both of these are kind of tragic, right? Because one of them seems really good, but then when you pay money for it and invest your time and your money into enjoying this mango, you realize it actually has nothing to offer. You're like, ah, on the inside, it's kind of crappy. Right? And then the other mangoes, if it's got a bruise or some cut in it, something on the outside that doesn't make it look good, even if it's really good on the inside, most people won't buy it, and it'll probably get thrown out before it even goes on sale. Right? So it's really important that we understand this concept that like, the whole part of the fruit has to be good for people to actually be attracted to it and enjoy it, and, and then actually uh, yeah, enjoy the fruit for what it's supposed to give you. And kindness and goodness, which is what the, the two uh, aspects of the fruit that we're talking about today, kindness and goodness are like the skin of the fruit. It's like the delivery system. It's the thing that you're judging on the outside, like, is the inside really worth my time, right? Uh, it's, it's the delivery system of the fruit. It's God's wrapper. It's God's plastic wrapper for this snack, right? Um, if you don't have kindness and goodness, your fruit is going to get passed over. It's not going to appear very appetizing. It will be very unattractive uh, to the outside world. Trying to bear fruit without kindness, I told this to Tucker, he really liked this this week. It's like trying to deliver a pizza without a box. Imagine you get home and you're starving and there's no food in the house and you order a pizza. The delivery driver gets there and you open up the door and the pizza's there, but there's no box. He's just sort of holding it. You're like, man, I, I did order this pizza but I didn't order this pizza, right? Like, this is not what I paid for. And you're like, I really want that pizza, but I don't trust that pizza, because I don't know where that's been, and it's all over your hands right now. And it's probably not warm anymore. I thought it was a pretty ridiculous <laughs> illustration, but Tucker thought it was hilarious, so I'm sharing it. Uh, so yeah, trying to bear the fruit of the Spirit without the aspects of kindness and goodness, which are these things that everyone wants, everyone talks about, everyone says these are good things, right? Whereas other aspects of Christian life, like the list of things Paul's going off here, sexual purity, something like that, like people everyone's not exactly searching for, for that. Everyone's not exactly pursuing that. Kindness and goodness, this is something that everyone, uh, Christian or non-Christian, is like, yeah, that's good, I want that, and I would generally describe myself as a kind and good person, totally, definitely, right? No, no shot. I think it's pro I would guess that almost 100% of people think that they're more kind or more good than the average person, which of course mathematically doesn't work. Uh, but that's just how we work as human beings, right? So you want to tell someone about the love of Christ, but you've got no kindness or goodness to show, to package it in, you might as well just quit. Sort of the point here. So what is kindness and what is goodness? Kindness, we're working with a, a Greek word here uh, that is Christotes. I'm just giving you a little Greek lesson today. And goodness is this Greek word, agathosune. And these are basically two sides of the same coin. So we're going to lump them together today. I'm probably just going to say kindness, and I mean both of these things. Because they're basically two sides of the same coin. A lot of times, these words are actually both translated as kindness or goodness, depending on the context. So they are really similar. And kindness typically refers in Scripture to an act of benevolence from one person to another, right? When someone supplies a need that another has, 
or when someone is spared maybe a negative circumstance that was surely coming their way. It's similar to the concept of mercy, right? You're just, you don't need to do this for someone else, but you chose to anyway. That's sort of what kindness is. Concept of goodness is similar, but the idea of something being good is extremely watered down in today's society. Pretty much everyone has their own definition of good, what is good or what's bad, and so you can't really get anything consistent. Uh, in the scriptures, however, it, it usually just refers, this specific word just refers to doing the right thing, the righteous thing, the thing that you know God requires no matter what. And it, obviously that would assume a knowledge of God's will and God's commands. So knowing God's commands, understanding what God's will would be, perhaps spending enough time with Jesus that you know what, you know, what would Jesus do in a moment, right? That's sort of assumed. If we want to practice goodness, we need to be very familiar with the goodness of Jesus. And then we can copy that onto our lives. So like I said, the concept of goodness is very debated, right? People have their own definitions for goodness. It's very relative. We live in a postmodern, post-Christian society where everyone says that's, that's good for you. It's not good for me. That's true for you. It's not true for me, right? These things are very malleable in our society today. But I remember the first time I actually engaged with, with this idea of like trying to come up with a consensus with other people about what is good or what is kind, what is ethical, right? This is a big discussion if you went to college, which I, was, I wouldn't be shocked if everyone in this room did, right? You probably took an ethics class, maybe a philosophy class. You're are you in philosophy class? What are you, you're waving at me. Oh, you didn't go to college. Okay, I was like, Gunnar, are you in sixth grade in, in, or seventh, seventh to eighth grade learning philosophy? Um, but I remember the first time uh, you got, now you got me distracted, Gunnar. I'm just, I'm just kidding. You're fine. Uh, yeah, the first time I engaged with this idea, I was actually watching The Office, which is the best show ever, right? Raise the hands. Who's seen like all The Office? Okay, I just need to make sure this illustration's going to hit. Okay, uh, season five, episode like two or three, business ethics. Really funny episode. Basically, this guy Ryan gets promoted to corporate, ends up committing fraud, gets fired, but then gets hired back at like an entry-level position. And so HR feels the need to go through this ethics binder in this sort of conference meeting and go through all of these circumstances that would be unethical in a business environment, right? This is unethical. Uh, stealing time by taking a long lunch, right? Stealing uh, office supplies and taking them home. That's that. This is not ethical. And you get this big interchange between Andy, Oscar, and then Dwight and Michael like to chime in about what ethics are and what's ethical. I remember as like a 14-year-old watching this episode and being like, hey, that is a pretty interesting concept. They're debating that, yeah. And, um, and Oscar, Oscar sort of interjects in the middle of this, uh, this conference, I guess, this, this meeting, and he says, that isn't ethics. Ethics is a real discussion of the competing conceptions of the good. This is just corporate anti-shoplifting rules, Holly. And she's like going through this fat binder full of do's and don'ts. And then Andy interrupts and he says, I'll drop an ethics bomb on you. Would you steal bread to feed your family? Boom. We're like, oh my gosh. Oscar's like, exactly, Andy. Andy says, yeah, I took intro to philosophy twice. No big deal. And then Dwight chimes in. He says, it's a trick question. The bread is poisoned and it's not your real family. You've been, sh you've been tricked by a stronger, smarter male. Andy says, that's not how it works. And Michael says, uh, he just chimes in with all the right answers. Michael says, I would not steal the bread and I would not let my family go hungry. Simple. 
Thank you, Michael Scott. He has the answer for everything. It was really funny, but I, I remember watching that episode and thinking like, man, yeah, you could just get five people in a room and they would all have different perceptions of what goodness is, what, what is kindness, what is right in a given moment. You need some sort of philosophy, some sort of virtue that sort of, sort of covers all the situations. And as I watch this episode back, I get this really weird thought because I'm like, this just reminds me of Jesus and the Pharisees in a way. Holly's trying to go through this huge binder of rules and I'm sitting there thinking, man, if everyone just did unto Dunder Mifflin as they would want Dunder Mifflin to do to them, they wouldn't need this huge binder of rules. And I'm like, this is Jesus and the law of Moses. Like everyone wouldn't need all these rules if they just loved their neighbor as themselves and, uh, and loved God uh, and loved their neighbor, right? They need, wouldn't need this binder full of rules. And I was like, Holly is Moses. I was like, this is really weird. But moving on from that, kindness and goodness. Jesus obviously teaches to love God and love your neighbor, but he, he just cites the Old Testament when he says this. I would say uh, when he tells people this, he's defining what kindness and goodness is. And we see this uh, in his parable of the Good Samaritan. There's an expert of Jewish law who comes up to him and he sort of challenges Jesus and asks this question, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is in Luke 10. We'll read the parable together. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers by citing him to the scriptures. He says, what is written in the law? He asked him, how do you read it? He answered back, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. That's Deuteronomy 6. He just quotes Moses. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's from Leviticus. Jesus says, you've answered correctly, he told them. Do this, and you will live. Just go do it. Just go do it. Now, this expert, clearly, he already knows the answer, because he's got the answers ready, right, when Jesus probes him a little. He's already got the answer. Uh, but this speaks to the fact that deciding what kindness and goodness is in a situation is not an exact uh, science. You can't do it with like a big list of rules. You need an undergirding philosophy, right? That sort of molds to the situation, right? If I went up to Gunner and gave him a candy bar, you would say, hey, that's pretty kind of you, Cohen. But if I went up to someone who's trying to lose a bunch of weight, who hasn't eaten sugar for like six months and said, hey, here's a candy bar, that would not be kind, right? So it really takes a knowledge of like a deeper philosophy, a deeper virtue, a value that you actually orient your life around, and you actually have to think about like what would actually be kind uh, for this person, for this situation. But the idea of being kind is not really a hard concept to grasp, right? I could sit here and try to define kindness all day. It wouldn't necessarily help us understand kindness. I feel like we all understand what it means to be kind, to be good. The difficult part is not conceptualizing cons uh, kindness and goodness. It's actually practicing kindness and goodness consistently across all circumstances and all people. That is the difficulty with kindness, is being consistent across all circumstances and all people. <clears throat> As we continue in Jesus' dialogue with this Jewish expert in the law, it says in verse 29, but wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Right? So now he's no longer trying to ask 
about how much good he can do for others or how to inherit eternal life or something like that. He's now trying to narrow down the command so that it's not as broad or it's not as forceful as it appears to be, right? He now wants it to be easier to actually obey this command. This is why he asked this question, who is my neighbor? Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So two like religious leaders see this person in need of kindness, and they decide to move to the other side of the street and keep going. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. And then he put, on him, uh, he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, which is two days' wages, and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. Whenever I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? I love this, because the man's question was not, uh, like, who is my neighbor that I need to love? He sort of turns it on, uh, Jesus turns it on the man and said, who, which of these three men was a good neighbor? Like, who was concerned with actually being a good neighbor rather than sort of uh, cutting out who doesn't qualify as my neighbor that I have to love? Reorients the question a little bit. And he answers sort of reluctantly. He can't even say the word Samaritan because of the, the racial tension, the racial issues that exist between Jews and Samaritans at this time. He just says, the one who showed mercy to him. You know the one I'm talking about, right? You know the one I'm talking about. And then Jesus told him, go and do the same. He almost doesn't even entertain the question that the man asks. He's like, if you're already asking that question, you've failed. You've already lacked kindness if you've, if you've asked that question. The things you're willing to not do just by asking that question, you've already lost. And so the point that Jesus wants to make in this parable, just within the story of the Gospels, is that those who knew the law of Moses the deepest, right, those who were the closest to God, those who taught others how to obey God, the people who sit in a chair like this with a microphone, right, the people in this sort of position, in that day were very worthy of criticism and rebuke. They were not known for showing kindness to people who really needed it. They were known for sort of focusing on rituals and drawing lines about who can be in and who can be out and sort of dividing people up, thinking that was sort of uh, what God wanted the most. And so when this expert in law asks who his neighbor is, who qualifies as my neighbor? Who actually is one of these people that I have to love? He's hoping that Jesus will limit it to some specific group of people that are easy to show kindness to, easy to love, easy to be good to, such as his family or his tribe within Israel, possibly his neighborhood, the people that he has to buy fish and bread from, the people who he actually will need something from in the future. Can I just love those people? Because it would make sense because I have to get something back from those people eventually. Can you just cut it off there? Who's my neighbor, right? Today we might think of uh, our family or our neighborhood or our political tribe or our church or denomination, right? My school uh, or my college within my university. 
my teammates, not the opponents, right? My clients or my boss, the people who write my check, not the people who asked for some help and I didn't necessarily get any sort of financial benefit from them. We, we may want to pick and choose between those people. Jesus just says, go and do the same. You're not in a place where you can ask that question. Go and do the same. As we get a few points from this parable that Jesus really wants this person to understand, we'll just go through those in order now. Number one, transactional kindness is not the fruit of the Spirit. Transactional kindness is not the fruit of the Spirit. Right? This guy immediately asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's kind of nonsensical because you don't do anything to inherit something, right? Like, what do you do to inherit your parents' wealth if they have wealth? You just be their child, right? You don't do something. You could do something to lose it, I guess. But you don't do anything to necessarily inherit it, uh, to inherit something. Transactional kindness, where you're seeking to do something in order to get something in return, is not really kindness. It's something different. It's like a down payment, a deposit a purchase for some future thing that you want in return. What must I do to get, 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 or to prevent me from losing something in the future? Makes me think of like Mr. Beast YouTube videos. Anyone know who, the, who this is? Raise a hands, just a few people. Mr. Beast has like a bajillion followers on YouTube, and I'm not knocking the guy, I'm just saying this isn't a definition of kindness. He's got like a bajillion YouTube followers, and most of his videos are just finding creative ways to give people large sums of money, right? Have you ever seen a video of someone filming themselves, like giving money to a homeless person and saying, like, basically acting like they don't know the camera's there, and the comment section is just like really cringy? And they're just like, this guy's so awesome. And I'm like, he's making more money on this video than he's given away. This doesn't really make much sense. Right? This is an example of like a modern 2023 version of like random acts of kindness. Did anyone have random acts of kindness week at school? I thought that they were the strangest things. I was like, this sort of implies that no one is kind on their own. We have to have like a day where we just get it all out of our system. Right? It's like the purge of kindness. I'm like, this really makes me feel like I need to work on just being regularly kind on a normal day. Um, yeah, random acts of kindness. There should be nothing random about kindness, right? It should be more of a rule than an exception. Um, and and I'm, I'm not knocking on random acts of kindness day, I guess. We could still have that. More kindness, the better. Uh, but typically, the random acts of kindness people do on a day like that or on a, just a random acts of kindness high, whenever someone's wanting to do something like that, it's usually to people you don't know, to people like you have no prior relationship with. People who it's, it's honestly, it's not difficult. You're just like, I'm going to do this kindness and I'm going to just go home, right? I'm going to give, uh, do some things and I'm going to just go home. Not really working with any relationships there. You're not working through any tension. You're not being kind to someone who it's like difficult to be kind to, right? Um, imagine if Jesus did that, right? Imagine if like the people Jesus healed, uh, just like, you know, he just healed them and sort of like went off and never talked to them again, never told them to do anything, um, a lot of times he told them not to tell other people what he did. He was like, just keep this down low. Just keep this between you and me, right? I don't want all this public, uh, public knowledge of this, you know? This is also, and this can be sort of a tangent. I think for a lot of students, this may be very relevant. This also means we reject the idea of karma. Um, karma is a word that's sort of used like a euphemism. 
even if you're not Hindu, which is where that word comes from, people like to talk about karma. And if you're just joking, you know, obviously I'm not going to sit here and act like it's some bad thing that you should stop saying. But the concept of karma is, is that you sort of put out goodness or kindness into the world and you sort of store up an account of goodness and the universe, which is like a impersonal God in this scenario, sort of feeds it back to you. And it's sort of an equal and opposite reaction. And if you go really deep into the Hindu idea of karma, it's usually like either in this life or you're getting paid back from something in a previous life. And obviously we don't believe in reincarnation, so that would not make sense to a Christian. But I've heard a lot of Christians use this idea of karma and sort of act as if it's consistent with a biblical worldview. And I just want to poke holes in that and say that that's not true. And I'm not sitting here harping, if you're here and you're a Hindu and you're just visiting, I'm glad that you're here. I'm not sort of bashing on Hindus right now. I'm just saying that as a Christian, the concept of karma, the concept of like you're gonna receive equally what you put out is not true. And you cannot expect it out of this life. Jesus did not expect it out of this life. And if you just look at Jesus, which is all you really need to look at, you know that karma is not true, right? If anything unkind ever happened to, un uh, ever, ever happened to Jesus, Karma is not true, right? Because Jesus is perfect. He's never sinned. He's never been unkind in any, any way. He's never been not good in any scenario. And his life was full of mockery, abandonment, pain, suffering. That was sort of his purpose. If you look at the apostles, it's the same thing. Almost all of them were martyred for their faith. You could maybe argue that Paul deserved it because he killed a bunch of Christians first and then converted. But the idea of karma, or whatever you want to put it, like whatever other word you want to say for sort of you receive back equally what you put out, it's just what the Bible would call self-righteousness. It's just called pride. And you can't live life that way. You can't live life with that transactional idea of kindness. If I put something out, I'll receive something back. I hear people say like, I'm just storing up good karma because I've got nothing to do today. I'm just going to go do some random acts of kindness, store it up, and I'll give it back. But our God is kinder than that. God doesn't actually give us what we deserve as sinners, right? He's kinder than karma. He is kinder than self-righteousness. He's kinder than uh, heaping back on us what we have done to God and what we have done to humans made in the image of God. He is much kinder than that. We have a word for that called forgiveness. The second point that Jesus is trying to get across in this parable is that kindness doesn't pick and choose. We've already sort of talked about this. It's extremely easy to be kind to those who you know to those who you love, to those who benefit you. But true kindness is tested when we are called to be kind in difficult circumstances and to difficult people. We don't practice kindness as Christians because people deserve our kindness. We practice kindness because it's what people need and it's what we have been shown by God. We have been shown kindness by God and so we show that kindness to others. The priests and the Levites in this story they chose convenience and easiness over kindness, right? So when they're walking down this street in this hypothetical story, these priests and these Levites, they see a man who could be dead on the side of the street, and instead of helping him, they think probably, if I touch a dead body or if I touch a bloodied body, that's technically, I'm, I'll become ritually unclean according to the law of Moses. I would have to not go into the temple for seven days. I would have to do these ritual washings. It would just be a big like hoopla, and so I'm just going to cross the street and go to this other side, right? Or maybe it's a trap, right? Maybe it's a trap and someone else is waiting. They chose ease of 
their day, and they chose convenience over kindness. They picked and chose convenience over kindness. They didn't like the situation. And the expert in the law who's talking to Jesus, Jesus is trying to say, hey, you're just like these priests and Levites. Or if you don't want to be like these priests and Levites, be like the Samaritan. Or he's trying to work with him here. Uh, he, he would assume that, you know, this Samaritan hates this Jew, and this Jew probably doesn't want the Samaritan helping him when he's thinking about this story. And so it's also breaking all of his categories. It doesn't matter who, it doesn't matter when, it doesn't matter where. If you treat people differently based off what they can do for you, you're picking and you're choosing. And that's not the kindness that is an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. It's just not. Thirdly, kindness is a command. Kindness is a command. Jesus tells this man, go and do the same. He commands him to do this. Jesus uh, is asked by this man, what must I do to inherit eternal life? If we go back to Galatians 5, if you want to scroll up and find that, Paul clearly says at the end of the list of the works of the flesh, he says, those who practice these things will surely not inherit the kingdom of God. These are commands to live out and bear the fruit of the Spirit. This is a command. Kindness isn't really seen like a command a lot of the times. In, in churches, in Christian circles, kindness is sort of seen as like the sprinkles on top of the cake. It's like a bonus. If you can be kind, then be kind. It's like a personality trait. You either have it or you don't. This is how we treat kindness. And kindness is not a suggestion. It is a command. I bet many of us probably know people who've been Christians for decades that we would not necessarily describe as kind people, right? It just is a fruit of the fact that people don't take kindness as a, a command seriously. It's, they take it more as a suggestion. Kindness as the skin of the fruit, the delivery system of the fruit, the thing that people sort of see first, is not a suggestion. It will taint whatever truth you have to tell, whatever love, peace, patience you have, it will sort of taint it because it's not communicated in a kind way. It's not communicated in a good way. So kindness and goodness is a requirement for anyone who wishes to grow in their walk with Christ and represent Christ well. And as a kindness, those who are unkind and refuse to do anything about it, like a good father, God will actually discipline you. And he will show you your sin and he will show you your unkindness as a kindness to you and me. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7, the writer of Hebrews says this. He says, endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? For if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us, and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of Spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them, but he does it for our benefit so that we can share his holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Fruit of the Spirit takes discipline, self-discipline, and discipline from the Father. We have to be open-handed about those things. So we looked at these three points. Transactional kindness is not fruit of the Spirit. Kindness doesn't pick and choose, and kindness is a command. We're going to look now at ways that Jesus actually lived that out. 
It's one thing to hear the commands of Jesus. It's another thing to actually understand examples of how he actually did this himself. So point one, transactional kindness is not the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus did not expect things in return from people he showed kindness to, at least in an earthly sense, right? Jesus healed people who requested healing from him. Every single event that mentions someone coming to Jesus for this reason in the Gospels, he, it says that he has compassion on them and he healed them. And he did this knowing how it would affect his ministry, right? Every time he healed someone and said, don't tell anyone about this, they would end up telling everyone about this, bringing more people to follow Jesus, crowding around him more, removing even more uh, privacy, even more time alone, less room to just breathe and just exist as a person. And he knew that that would happen, and yet he did this kindness for people anyway. Jesus spent time with those who were rejected by the religious leaders of the day. He was the shepherd for those without a shepherd. And when crowds came out into the wilderness to hear him teach, he also knew, knew he needed to feed them. And he was okay being a teacher and a waiter. He was like, I'll do both of those things. Ultimately, Jesus died for the sins of the world, knowing that many, if not most, would never accept the forgiveness he was offering and the forgiveness that he paid for. Jesus did not offer kindness because of an expected return from each and every person. He offered it because it was what others needed. It was what others needed. Our second point, that kindness doesn't pick and choose, same thing. He didn't pick and choose who he would offer his life for. He didn't just die for the Jews, but all peoples, all nations. He didn't just die for people who had a good past, a good pedigree, people who came to the cross saying, this is exactly what I was looking for. But he spent time with the poor, the middle class, like his disciples, the upper class, the religious elite. He spent equal time with all of these, uh, all of these different levels of society. He didn't ignore anyone or wait for a time when someone more deserved his kindness or more deserved his teaching. If you want to learn from my teaching, just come on in. Join the crowd. Come follow me. Just come out in the wilderness. Right? Romans chapter 5, verse 6. I feel like I quote Romans 5 eight every single time I teach, but not going to apologize for it. Romans chapter 5, verse 6, Paul says, while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person or a righteous person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die, maybe. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we still had nothing to offer, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received this reconciliation. Our third point that we talked about was that kindness is a command, right? Jesus was commanded, commissioned, sent by the Father to bring us this kindness, to live a perfect life, to die for our sins, to defeat death by his resurrection, and to give us that kindness. It was his mission. It was his command. And Jesus fulfilled perfectly his commission from the Father. And in the same way, we who have received such kindness from Jesus, we have no room to ignore the importance of kindness and goodness in our call to bear the fruit of the Spirit. It cannot be ignored. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus explains to his disciples 
through their hard heads and their hard hearts his purpose. He said, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is why I came, he says. So as we close here, I want us to look back at our initial text here in Galatians 5. If we look at verse 24 and 25, after he lists the fruit of the Spirit, he says this. He says, uh, Paul says, now those who belong to Christ Jesus, that's us in this room. That's us in this room, followers of Christ. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Paul uses rebirth language here, right? To crucify something is to kill it and embarrass it in the process. That is what we are called to do to the desires of the flesh that he lists out. We consider ourselves dead to those things. They are completely dead, and they are, they are embarrassed by the, the, by the crucifixion. We kill those things, and now we live again by the Spirit. And the last point that we, we need to say here is that to bear fruit of the Spirit, it requires new life. And I don't doubt that most people in this room have received that life and entered into that new life. We must be born again to bear this fruit. And so if you're here today and you are not a follower of Jesus, you wouldn't call yourself as someone who belongs to Christ at this moment. And perhaps you have this perception of kindness. It's transactional. Maybe you view the things that you do as sort of earning something with God. Jesus has come to tell you that that's, that's not the right frame of mind to approach God with. That's not a possible thing to do. And it assumes that you're doing a good enough job to really balance those scales or tip the scales in your favor. And the good news, the kindness of Jesus, is that Jesus has set us free from such a pursuit. We do not have to worry about if we are doing enough to earn that kindness from God. Jesus has lived a perfect life in our place. He's died a sinner's death on a cross in our place. And he's defeated death by his resurrection, the ultimate consequence for our sin. And it's free, it has freed us to consider our old self dead and to live a new life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is the fruit that we now bear. So for those who are followers of Christ today in this moment, we're going to enter into a time of communion. Uh, and so I, I'm going to give you a few, uh, a few seconds. I'll, I'll give you about a minute 